I think a lot of you could side with me and agree with me when I say I don't like going to the dentist. Yeah, I see a few nods around the room. Okay, a lot of you don't like going to the dentist. And it is music to my ears when the dentist says, you're all good. No work needs to be done. Because then I can skip out of that dentist office and I'm okay. But there's a reason I don't like the dentist. And it stems from an experience about five years ago where I had a kindly, well-intended, but very inexperienced student dentist look inside of my mouth. Now, I, I won't go into the details of why she was looking inside of my, my mouth, but she said, oh, there's, there's a problem with, with one, of your, one of your teeth right there. I think we need to take that out ASAP. Oh, okay then. And she says, we can do it cheaply as well. Oh, okay, you better take it out. Take this tooth out. I don't want a bad tooth in there. So I go to the dentist's office where the student is learning, and, and it's just the worst experience imaginable. It's like torture in this chair. Now, uh, 15 or so attempts to get the numbing injection in there, it finally happens. There are four or five different drills in my mouth to get to the root, and then six attempts to tie the stitches, but the feeling's coming back. This isn't a good experience. And then I'm just a mess afterwards. And then four days later, I'm thinking, this isn't getting any better. So I go and see a real dentist. And he's like, ah, student dentists. She's made a mess of your mouth. We're going to have to repack that, give you some antibiotics. So I don't like dentists. I know what they can do. Now, now we know that. We know that feeling. We know that feeling of just saying, I, 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 I know what's there. It makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't want to address that. I, I'm happy just to ignore. Ignorance is bliss. So I'm not going to face it. And maybe we do that when we get a bill come through the front door laying on the doormat. We know what's in the envelope, but we'll just leave it an extra couple of days because we don't want to face whatever it is that's inside of that envelope. Maybe we do that across life in many different areas. I don't want to face it. It's confusing. It makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't want to go there. So we don't face it. Now, what we're going to be looking at this morning is the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And my experience is that for many people, this is an area we don't really know what to do with. We're not sure how to wrestle with this, how to think about it. So we'll just plead ignorance. Ignorance is going to be bliss. So let's just leave gifts of the Holy Spirit. Not sure what to make of those. So let's leave them alone. But that's not what we're going to find in the Bible. What we're going to find is Paul saying to the church in Corinth, um, no, ignorance is not okay in this area. We need to think about this kind of stuff. Now, on Sunday mornings, the last few weeks, we've been in our series called The Giver of Life. And it's about looking at the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And we've had the same question each week. And here's the question we've been asking. How does the Holy Spirit work? And each week, we've been taking a passage or a collection of passages and bringing an answer to that question. Now, this week, the question we're going to be asking is, how does the Holy Spirit work as the equipper? Now, I could reword that. How does the Holy Spirit work as the giver of gifts? How does the Holy Spirit equip people like you and me to do things within the church and outside of the church for the cause of Jesus? How does the Holy Spirit give gifts? That's where we're going to be this morning. So why don't you grab those Bibles. Let's have them open to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be kicking off in verse 1. So you can open up your own Bibles. If you've got them on your phones, open those up. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You can grab the pew Bibles on the ends of the pews. The page is going to be 1155. No, 1,155. We're going to be kicking off in verse 1 
of Corinthians chapter 12. Now let's do just a tiny bit of background work here. Now what we have in Corinthians is the Apostle Paul, famous first century Christian, amazing conversion to Jesus. He then becomes this uh, world famous, even to this day, missionary, taking the gospel to as far as he possibly can. Now, there's a church in the city of Corinth. He writes a letter to them, hence the name Corinthians. He's writing to this church. And it's a highly, highly dysfunctional church. They can't seem to figure out how to do church properly. Get, they turn inward on themselves. They seem to be getting selfish. They don't understand what pursuing holiness looks like. So Paul's saying to them, look guys, let's get a couple of things straight here. And one of the things he wants to get straight is their use of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. So the Holy Spirit's going to give gifts, but they're using them in a way that's spinning this church out of control. So that's why he kicks off chapter 12 with this, first one. Now concerning spiritual gifts, now the literal word there is the spirituals, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now that's a word for us today, isn't it? It's okay just to hide from this kind of stuff, but we want to face this kind of stuff. I do not want you to be uninformed. So ignorance on this isn't a place, isn't a position we can take. It's not okay to be uninformed. Now, before we move any further, I'm going to have to give a couple of disclaimers. Three disclaimers. Let's give three disclaimers before we move any further. Number one, we need to be really, really sensitive when it comes to this kind of stuff. Why do I say that? Why do we need to be sensitive? Well, BRBC is in a really, really wonderful, beautiful, diverse spot at the moment. We have all kinds of different people in our church family who have all kinds of different church backgrounds. I mean, it's, it's amazing. We have people who are coming from ultra incredible, uh, very conservative church backgrounds. And we have other people who've come from really ultra charismatic Pentecostal churches. So there's, there's all kinds of different experiences in our backgrounds to do with church, whether we grew up there or we became Christians in these churches. We have tons of different experiences, but we're all coming together as one church family. It's a very special thing for BRBC. It's a very special thing for our family that we have such a diversity of backgrounds. But what that also means is there is a need, a massive need for sensitivity when it comes to some of the controversial topics we can find within the Bible. If we can't engage in this with sensitivity, then there's no point looking at this at all. But I know you, I love you, and I know you switched on enough to be able to deal with this with sensitivity. First disclaimer. Second one, there is a level of ambiguity surrounding this topic. There's a, there's a level of vagueness. There is a level of, this is really hard to understand. Now, what I'm not saying <laughs> is the Bible is off point here. BRBC, we say the Bible's God's word. It's living and active. It's God-breathed. It's what we base our lives upon. It's sufficient for our lives. But even so, that is true. There are going to be some areas in the Bible that are harder to understand than others. So there is going to be a level of vagueness around this topic that sometimes doesn't quite feel satisfactory. I've been all week in this, and I wish it was just a touch clearer, and Paul had said, right, BRBC, you're going to have to know this. So there is a level of ambiguity around this. One of the most famous theologians of our day who understands the Bible well, 
His name is J.O. Packer. And regarding these things, he writes, one can never, in any particular case, have more than a tentative provisional opinion, open to reconsideration over life and time. That's a guy who knows the Bible better than any of us in this room. And he says, one can never, in any particular case, have a tentative provisional opinion open to reconsideration over life and time. So recognizing there is a level of ambiguity there. Third little disclaimer, um, you're going to have questions. You're going to have big questions. And I know after I've finished this morning, most of you are going to feel unsatisfied with some of the answers I give. You're going to say, what about this? What about this? What about so-and-so? I can't promise to answer every single question you have. That's not really my job to answer absolutely every question you can concoct. But I know there are going to be questions, and I'll do my best to answer whatever I can. Me and Peter, you can come to us or anyone else you know within the church who has insight into these things and ask those questions. This is a continual exploration of God's Word on these things. So there are those disclaimers right there, and we're going to get moving on through this passage. Look at verse 2. You know... That when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Now, this is, this is characteristic of Paul's writing. He'll often write to the churches and say, do you remember where you came from? This is true for anybody living in the city of Corinth. city of Corinth had a massive market for the production of idols. So whether that was like a silver statue you could put in the corner of your house, or there were little shrines on the roadside, Well, you could stop and you could worship these things. But Paul is saying, look, these things you followed when you were pagans and you worshipped those idols, those things didn't speak to you. They couldn't lead you. Why? Because they were mute. They don't communicate. But he's got an alternative for us. Verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. No one can ever say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is consistent with everything we've been saying in our Holy Spirit series so far. He's on the topic of spiritual gifts. He's on the topic of the work of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit equips the church. And what's Paul saying? The Holy Spirit is all about Jesus Christ. We've said that. The Holy Spirit is not going to work independently. The Holy Spirit is not going to be, Holy Spirit is about Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to be about Jesus Christ. He's going to be about lifting Jesus up, making Jesus seen, making Jesus known, showing him to be all that he is and his person work. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Paul's just proved it right there. So when it comes to spiritual gifts, it's going to be about Jesus. Now we've said the Holy Spirit is like a floodlight ministry. If you've been watching the Winter Olympics, you'll see some of the evening events. I watched the skeleton the other day. I can't believe people do that. I'm not sure if I'd ever give it a go. Maybe I would if you twisted my arm. But there's, there's floodlights out there to help people see this track and these uh, nutters going down this track. And these floodlights, you see the floodlights, they exist. Why? To show themselves up? No. The floodlight exists to show you what's going on in front of you, in front of them. The, the event, the drama, the the the... the, the the play going on there. The, the, the floodlight exists not to show itself, but to show what's going on. The Holy Spirit's function is to shine a light on Jesus Christ. He elevates Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So if we're asking, what do we need to know about these gifts? How is the Holy Spirit equipping? Here's our first answer this morning. The gifts that the Holy Spirit gives as the equipper elevate Jesus. Now that's key. 
I want you to remember that. Whether you're in BRBC or you're in any other context or interacting with other people where it is claimed the Spirit is at work. Because here's our main filter for working out whether the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is at work. The main filter is whether Jesus is elevated or not. I've been a million different Christian contexts. Oh, the Holy Spirit's here, the Holy Spirit's, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit this. Holy Spirit's in that person's life and in that person's life. What am I looking for when someone says that? Well, is Jesus being made known? Is he being lifted up? Is he being shown to be Lord of all? Is he being shown to be the, the king above all kings? Is Jesus being... That's the filter. So, so the work of BRBC, if, if, if we or you go off into another church when, when you move or, or you're stationed somewhere else, how do you know the Holy Spirit's at play? When Jesus is being made known. What, what about in, in an individual's life? How do you know someone's spirit-filled, spirit-motivated, spirit-led? How do you know that? When Jesus is being held as Lord over that particular life, that they're captivated with Jesus Christ. That's your filter for understanding the work of the Holy Spirit. Not necessarily miraculous events. Not necessarily spontaneity. Not necessarily wild emotional roller coasters. But is Jesus being held high? Okay, Paul's going to keep moving through this to give us more insights into the gifts that the Spirit gives. Verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God, who empowers them all in everyone. So look at those three verses. Quite a poetic way of saying the same thing in each verse. There's activities, gifts, services, but it's the same God, the same Holy Spirit that is equipping each believer in these cases. Now what Paul is saying right here, This is real simple, you've got to hear this. That when you become a Christian, this is true, when you become a Christian, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is the bond between you and Jesus. You read the New Testament, almost 200 times you'll see that being saved, being a Christian, is being united to Jesus Christ. So that's what the Holy Spirit does. Indwells you, unites us to Jesus. But what the Holy Spirit also does is equips you with at least one gift to use for the benefit of other people, to make Jesus known in the lives of others. The Holy Spirit's going to give you at least one gift, at least one, at least one gift to equip you for the purposes of lifting Jesus up in the lives of those around you, inside or outside the church. Okay, great. The Holy Spirit gives a gift. You just said, I've got a gift. So what could these gifts possibly be? Now, Now, if we're going to look over the scope of the New Testament what we're going to find is there's many different gifts being used in the church. We've got two lists in Corinthians. We've got a list in Romans, list in Ephesians, list in First Peter. So let's go through some of the gifts we find stated in the New Testament. Because you're asking, okay, he gives us a gift. What could those gifts be? Now, let's have a look at a few of these. The gifts in First Corinthians, or at least the first lift, list we find right here. Gift of wisdom. Gift of knowledge, gift of faith, healing, powers or miracles, prophecy, which is going to be bringing God's word in a profound and pointed way into people's lives, discernment, 
Tongues, some of you are like, what are tongues? Tongues in the Bible are either going to be human languages used for outreach, so languages that you don't know what they actually mean, or it's going to be another language that you don't really know what you're saying that the Bible says needs to be interpreted, so going to give that language. There's different types of tongues we're finding, and then interpretation of tongues. So next one we find in 2 Corinthians, further on in 12, apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, healing, helping others, administration, and tongues. Now, there's more lists. Let's carry on in Romans. Romans 12, we find one. Prophecy, serving, teaching, encouraging, generosity, leadership, showing mercy. There's one in Ephesians chapter 4, but smaller now. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers. Last one, really small one in First Peter. Speaking and serving. Now, I know some of you are furiously scribbling, scribbling down some of those things, but you can type it, type it into Google at home and you can find these, these lists. Really, really easy to find. But here's the thing. Looking at these gifts, we often talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in terms of being wonders or signs or miraculous. Granted, a good chunk of those ones we just looked at right there are wondrous and signs and way out of the norm. But also, a massive proportion of those gifts we just looked at are the ordinary ones. Now, when we say gifts of the Holy Spirit, we often jump to the things that we don't normally see in life, the things where the laws of physics don't seem to work all of a sudden. But actually, a massive chunk of those gifts actually are the normal things of life. What do we see? Encouragement, administration, gifts of mercy, teaching, leadership. So what we're seeing is a massive variety of the types of gifts. Now, our tendency is to often say, well, um, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are those miraculous ones, and this ordinary stuff, well, that's the stuff we just have to get done. But, But I think within the right context we're reading in the Bible here, the work of the Holy Spirit does also seem to be in the day-to-day normal stuff too. I mean, how often do we say, we want to see the miraculous healing. Great, we want to see that. But really what those lists are saying is that miraculous stuff is the ordinary stuff too. There's there's something miraculous and of the Holy Spirit passing a note of encouragement to someone else in this room. Hey, I thought you'd be comforted by this verse in the Bible. There's something miraculous about the everyday hug, making a cup of tea, welcoming someone on the door, playing some chords on your guitar. There's something miraculous and Holy Spirit driven by the everyday to day things of the church. So let's not be a church that says uh, there's miraculous stuff and there's ordinary stuff. No, the Holy Spirit is lacing the work of the church with his power in all that we do, even down to the mundane things of life within a church family. But we've got more questions still. Well, let's, let's wrap point two. Point two. Yeah, I need to do that. Uh, <laughs> what do we need to know about these gifts? The gifts are for all believers. But now we've got questions, right? Questions. Well, which gift is mine? I still want to know. You've shown this list of gifts on the screen. Which one of these is me? Because I have to know this. Once I know, I can then grow it. I can live into it. And I can do what I'm supposed to do. Right. Look at verses four, five, and six again. There is one word that's repeated three times, and this is key. 
There are varieties, there's a word, varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activity, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. The key word I want us to look at there is varieties. Because what we've just done is we threw several different lists of gifts that the Holy Spirit gives the church. Now here's my thinking here, and it might be different to what you've heard before. If there was a set 20 gifts by the Holy Spirit, 25, 50, I don't know. If there was a set amount of gifts that the Holy Spirit gives, then you would expect every single list we looked at to have the same amount of gifts in it. So to write the Holy Spirit is going to give one of these 25 different gifts, at least one, to you for serving in the church or outside of the church. But you don't find that. Every single list is different. You don't have 25 there, 25 there, 25 there, 25 there. Each list we're finding is different. What does that tell me? That tells me, and I think this is the case, this tells me that each list of gifts that is given is, con- is, is specific to the context in which the list was given. So it was that church, wherever the list is, it was that church that needed to hear those particular gifts. So why does Paul write about these particular miraculous sign gifts in Corinthians? Because they needed to hear how to use them properly. They got it all wrong. They were using tongues in the meetings and no one could understand what they were saying. And he said, what's the point in that if people can't understand it? So they were using them wrongly. Perhaps in Romans, they needed to know about some of these more ordinary gifts. Perhaps in Peter, just needed to summarize those things to the readers of that church. So what does that mean? Let's track with the logic here. That means there are varieties of gifts. Let me, let me illustrate me and me and Jude sometimes read one of his um, one is like spot the animals books. So you have like these these landscape scenes in the books. So that would be like a desert scene, uh, I don't know, a, an ocean scene or a jungle scene. So we look at the jungle scene and there's this chaotic picture going on in the middle of this double double page spread. There'll be animals, trees, and leaves all going on. And then there's this big white border around the picture. And on the big white border, it's got, can you find 10 ants? So we have to spot all the ants. Or can you find three macaw parrots and find those? Can you find two leopards? But in this picture, there, there are some monkeys swinging around. But the monkeys aren't in the border. So I say to Jude, can you find the monkeys? Looks around the border. No, I guess there's no monkeys in there. So he assumes there's no monkeys there because he can't see them in the border on the outside. You see what I think's going on right here in these lists that we see? They're context-specific gifts, context-specific lists. So that shows us there is a broad variety of gifts, as broad as the needs of any given church. You hear that? The gifts are as broad as any, the needs of any given church family. So here's the point three right here. The gifts are diverse, not limited. Now, here's the point we want to start asking. This isn't helping me because I want to know my gift. You're not helping me, James. I want to know my gift. I did one of those gift inventories once, and it told me I was this. That kind of throws that out and into confusion a little bit. Well, I think what Paul's going to do right here is to say, that's not the best starting point. To say, where's my gift? What am I supposed to do in this church family? Isn't really the best starting place. 
Let's read verse 7 here. He's going to show us. That's, this is the right starting place. Uh, to, give, to, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit, so that's a gift of the Spirit, for the common good. So he's saying right here, the starting place to think about gifts, the starting place to think about how the Holy Spirit equips you to lift Jesus up in the lives of others is not to say, what's my gift? The starting place is to say, what are the needs around me? The starting place is to say, it's not about me. It's not about what I can do. It's about what are the needs of the church family that I find myself in. How can I elevate Jesus in the way I know how, in the way I've been made to, in that church family? Where are the needs? Where are the gaps? What can I do to shine Jesus in this church and outside the church to propel the message of the gospel? That's the starting place. In 2003, it was a great year for anybody who calls themselves English. Why? Because we won the Rugby World Cup, didn't we? Johnny Wilkinson kicked that drop goal and defeated the Aussies. Wasn't that great? But, but there was a lot of writing done after we won, won the World Cup. There was magazines, articles, books written to try and figure out what was it that took these good individual players and made them a world-beating team. What was it? And so a lot of the writing was done around the philosophy of the coach, Clive Woodward. And he had all of these interesting things he used to try and get the players to think differently. One of them, he, one of his philosophies was teacup, thinking clearly under pressure. So he'd get the team to try and think clearly under pressure. I see that worked in the final, didn't it? But he, he also, also would try and get these individuals who were incredibly gifted to see themselves as part of a team. Because these individuals were the superstars of their club teams. They came into the England team with a swagger. They thought they were it. They said, no, I had to destroy that. I had to get rid of the self-focus. I had to get rid of it, see, about me. And I bring them into the team. And I had to show them that it was the mission of the team that was way above them being able to display what they could do. Do you hear that? That's exactly what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. This is not about what you can do. It's not about you walking in and saying, I've got some gifts, so if you can't use me here, I'll just go somewhere else. It's saying, where are the needs? How can I chip in? I'll start as low as I need to right here. But whatever it takes to lift Jesus up in the lives of others. I mean, that's why Paul carries on in 1 Corinthians. And he gives us that famous illustration of a body. Your church is like a human body. There's different parts. But all of them are interdependent. So you can never say within a church, hmm, I'm better than these people and I don't need them, so I'm going to go and do my own thing. That doesn't stand. And also what doesn't stand is someone sitting there saying, I'm inadequate, I'm not as good as them, there's nothing for me to do here. None of that stands. He's saying, look, aren't we part of this body? Aren't we part of the same team? And in order for this to work, we have to recognize that it isn't about me. So fourth point, the gifts are for others. The Holy Spirit has equipped you to elevate Jesus in the lives of those around you. And the starting place to figure that out is not to ask the question, what do I do? Where's my gift? It's to say, what are the needs of the people around me? How can I best elevate Jesus in their lives? I think this really doesn't let consumer ideas of church stand. 
You, you know when you go into a restaurant, and you can watch these some people who kind of walk into restaurants with, you know, a high level of entitlement, like, this is a good restaurant, and I'm going to pay good money, and I better get good food and good service. And when they don't get it, they kick up an enormous fuss because there was something slightly wrong with the food or something slightly wrong with the service, and they go all upset because they didn't get the biggest bang for their buck. That's the consumer mentality. I pay, you better deliver. Too often that gets downloaded into the way we view church. We come through the door. You better make me feel good this morning. You, you better lift me up. That sermon better be on, pi- on point, preacher. You, you better make sure that I am filled. Because if I'm not, I'm going to take my time and the fraction of my income elsewhere. But Paul is saying that's a deplorable way to think about church. To walk in and say it's about me. To walk in and say it's about my needs, but actually to know the gospel, to be a Christian, to be equipped by the Holy Spirit, is to walk in and say, it is about everyone else around me before it is about me. Now we're going to get on to the juicy bit, verse 8. You've been looking forward to this. <laughs> for one, for to one is given through the same Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he will. So first question as you look at that, you're thinking, James, we've just seen the other lists in the Bible. You've said the gifts are, there's varieties of them, and the gifts are as broad as the needs of any given church. Right. So why is it that Paul seems to be focusing on these ones? Why does he hone in? Does he think these are better? No. Paul talks about these miraculous, sign, wondrous gifts Because there is a problem going on in the church in Corinth. Out of all of the gifts, these seem to be the ones that get misused the most. Most of you know that from your own experience. Out of all the gifts, these are the ones where people use them, they go inward on themselves, they become all about me, and they don't elevate Jesus. So Paul is saying, let's get these ones straight. You can read Corinthians 14. He's trying to iron out the misuse of these gifts. Great. But you're still asking the question to me, James, we see this kind of stuff in the Bible. Does this kind of stuff exist for today? Now, James, we see it right there. We see these exciting, miraculous, wondrous things. Does this exist for today? Because, James, if you say what you're going to say and give us an answer, aren't we implicated in the answer to this? And we as a church, listen to what it is you view on this kind of stuff. What do you say? Well, for this, I'm going to take you through my Christian journey. And hopefully it will shed light on where I stand on this kind of stuff. I asked a couple of other pastors if this was a wise thing to do. And they said, yeah, go for it. So you can stone me afterwards if you don't like it. It's fine. I became a Christian at 17 years old. I sat in a pew at the back there. I heard the gospel for the first time. Blew my mind. The next year and a half, I was dipping in and out of church. I loved hearing the Bible, but I'm really struggling with some, some things outside of church. And 
really needed some discipleship. But the age of 19, I said, look, I can't live like this anymore. I believe the gospel. I need to give my life to Jesus because it's the best thing for me. That's what I need to do. And so about 19 years old, I said, right, I'm fed up with how I'm living. I'm all out for Jesus. And, and then someone invites me to a conference. And I'm like, great, I'll go to this conference. So I go to this Christian conference somewhere else in the UK. And, and it, it, it's an amazing experience for me. Because for the first time in my Christian life, I've come across people my own age, fully living, committed for Jesus Christ. I'd I'd never seen it before. And it was amazing. People my own age, knowing their Bibles, knowing the Word, knowing and wanting to follow Jesus more. And I just loved that. That was incredible. But then we came around to these big meetings. And I had a vague idea of some of these passages. But it was just an unbiblical use of the gifts. It was plain. There, there was, you know, they would do away with the Bible. Okay, we're not going to go over the Bible today. We're just going to, we're just going to open this time up for the use of some of the gifts. And so, yeah, I saw people healed. I saw people speaking in tongues. There was prophecy going on, but most of it wasn't elevating Jesus Christ, and it was self-centered. Oh, I came away from that saying, "Well, I'm still unclear of whether these kinds of gifts are for today. So, what do I do about that?" Well, I pleaded ignorance, put it on the back burner. Roll, I'll roll on a couple of years later, I'm coaching football in Florida. And as I'm coaching football in Florida, I'm getting emails from people back home. James, we've heard this revival has broken out in Florida. And we know you're in Florida. You need to go and see this revival. Well, I'm, looking, I'm looking at the map. Yeah, we're only an hour away. So we filled up a minibus with all of us coaches and we went off to this revival. We got there. This is going to be great. I've never been to one of these before. I wonder what's going to happen. And immediately there, there was a misuse of tongues. It wasn't interpreted, and there was just absolute chaos in there. Look, the preacher got up and preached a 30-point sermon about himself, and then he starts healing people by punching them in the gut. There were old 80-year-old ladies, uh, ladies with, like, stage 4 stomach cancer, and he was whacking them in the stomach, and I'm thinking, oh, what is going on? So I walk out of this completely disillusioned with this kind of stuff. of my experience had been that these kinds of things didn't exist anymore. And I just kind of said to myself, these kinds of gifts finished when the Bible was finished. They were needed in the New Testament. They don't exist for the day. So there I was, done. You call that position cessationism. I just said they have ceased. No more. The Bible's finished. We don't need them anymore. Every time I've seen them, I don't like it. It's not biblical. Why can't people get a handle on them? Fast forward a few years and I'm at Moody, still in the same position, except one particular day I'm in a lecture. And I'm daydreaming like I normally do, and I look across to some other guy in the room. He's about two years older than me. And I can't really find the words to describe what went through me. Something like electricity, I don't know, but it was like being hit over the stomach as I looked at him. I felt sadness, I felt pain, I felt hurt. And as I looked at him, I knew that he had an issue in his life. And that issue, I can't describe it, but I knew the issue was something to do with not being able to have kids. I don't really know what to do with that. I thought, James, you've just got a hyperactive intuition. Just leave it. (laughs) You don't even know. Come around to the next lecture. I sit there again. I look across to the same guy in my normal daydreaming state. I look at him and there we go again. Wave of sadness wave of struggle and pain. And this guy, I know, is struggling with that. What am I going to do with that? I don't know what to do. I can't go up and ask him these kinds of questions. 
Next lecture rolls around, exactly the same thing happens. But I'm on the point of tears this time. What do I do with that? I said, well, I've got nothing to lose. I think what I'm going to do after a few weeks of thought, I've got to go and talk to this guy. I've got to tell him that um, I, I, I wonder if you're going through this, but here's God's word and let me encourage you by God's word in this situation. What do I do? So I went and sat down and talked to him and I said, I know this is going to sound very strange and believe you me, it sounds more strange to me than it does to anyone else, but um, are you having difficulty? There's something to do with kids having a hard time here? visibly moved and he said that is incredible me and my wife have been struggling with infertility for a long time so what was I able to do I opened God's word I encouraged him I comforted him and we prayed and we've been really great friends since Jesus was elevated in his lives in his life and his wife's life I thought, okay that's just a one-off right I'll leave it with that I don't know what to do what do you do with that kind of stuff well around a few months later I'm at work I was a janitor at the time cleaning toilets I look across at one of my friends and it's like having a bar across the stomach. I look at him and I feel this wave of pain again. And to the point where I, I'm not much of a crier, but I'm on the brink of tears just thinking, this guy, I know he just feels really, really lonely. He's wrestling with something. And I don't know what it is, but I know he's hurting. I let it go for too long, but I ended up going around to talk to him and saying, uh, uh, you feel lonely. Can, can we talk? I, I don't know what it is, but I feel moved to talk to you about this. And he said, yeah, I'm... Um, I'm committed to the scriptures. I, I believe God's word. And he said, but I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. He says, I, be- I believe a biblical definition of marriage and sexuality. And I want to be faithful to that. But sometimes I just feel lonely. So I've got to bring God's word to him and pray for him and encouragement. And have been great friends ever since. It's happened again a few times while I've been preaching here at BRBC. Out of nowhere, I just think there's someone in here who needs to hear this and I never really know what to do with it. So you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, that's still vague, James. That's still a vague answer. What do we do with this kind of stuff? Because you can still be someone who believes these things have stopped as gifts, but God still works in miraculous ways. You still believe that. What do you do with that, James? Where do you stand on all of this? I feel as vague as you probably do right now. But here's where I stand. I say I'm open, but really cautious. I'm open, but really cautious. What, what, is, what do I mean by that? Well, I read the Bible and I don't see a passage that I'm satisfied with that says the gifts have stopped in this capacity. I don't see someone saying these gifts have faded away. I know there's verses people point to, but I'm not satisfied by the arguments. But what I also see in the Bible is a be careful. These things can easily be, a, be about you. These things you can easily turn inward on yourself. And it becomes a show where you elevate yourself, you massage your own consciences, and you have a little bit of a swagger because you're the one with the gift. What I see in the Bible is an open but cautious. What I see in my life, got to be open. But I've got to be really cautious because 95% of my experience is a misuse and abuse of this kind of stuff. And you're like, okay, James, well, where does that leave us? Where does that leave you? What leaves me in exactly the same place, I think. Still pursuing unity. Still being sensitive to the needs of people. We will still be about unity and we will always be about elevating Jesus Christ. Always about that. Nothing is going to bring contention like this into our church family. We will never be split over something like this. We must make that commitment. But what does it do? I think it brings a sense of expectancy. To pray that God may break into 
fractured, broken situations and restore. Maybe it means we do pray with a sense of expectation that God can heal and God does heal. Maybe it means we step into our days with a sense of expectancy and say, Lord, would you help me bring your word in a poignant, pointed way into someone's life that it changes their lives forever? Where does it leave us? I think with a sense of expectancy. But I'll always advocate the open but cautious view. I'll go back to J.I. Packer. What does he say? One can never have in any particular case more than a tentative opinion open to reconsideration. But here's the focus of everything we've been through so far. Pick those Bibles up. Chapter 13 and verse 1. Here's where I'm going to finish. Chapter 13 and verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, then I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. That's the focus of all of this for Paul. We blow this out of proportion. What has he said? The Holy Spirit will gift you in a way that coincides with the needs of your church. And he'll gift you with something where you can elevate Jesus in the lives of people around you. The Holy Spirit is the equipper. The Holy Spirit is the gift giver. And we're being called to exercise all of this with an other person's centeredness. In love. Why? Because we are loved. Because God sent his son to die on our behalf so that we might go free. So that we might be united to him to experience a love that we can't find anywhere else. And to live that out in our church community. What a privilege. Let's pray and then we'll sing our last song. Lord, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the words written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Lord, I recognize we're going to have plenty of questions. Some things will make us feel uneasy. Some things we want to hide from. Some things we'd just rather plead ignorance. But Lord, we know that's not the way when you've given us your word. So Lord, I pray you'd help us to see, help us to find, help us to explore how the Holy Spirit has gifted us for elevating Jesus in the lives of others. But Lord, help us not to do it with a focus of self, but to do it all couched in the kind of love we have already received in the person of Jesus Christ. And we're praying in Jesus' name. Amen.